Hey, great to have you here with us today. Thanks, John A, for those words. Yes, I have broken out the threads today, but uh, I'm not sure about the A game. We'll see how we go. We'll wind it up. We'll hit the go button and we'll see where it lands. So, but look, how exciting that we're coming together very soon again to worship God together as a church in person. Really excited about that. And uh, look, it's just been fabulous. And may I also just add my sincere gratitude to those that have served us over the last several months online. Um, and thank you for hanging in there with us as we've journeyed together. Of course, as we've journeyed, we've, uh, over the last probably, I guess, two years, we've been go- working away progressively through a lot, number of the Old Testament books, starting from Genesis and right through. And as we've gone through, we've seen the, the journey of the children of Israel, or the people of God, as they come up out of Egypt and how they've entered into the promised land and through famine and through wilderness and on into conquest and establishment of the nation of Israel. And on that journey as we've gone through, there's been a little box that's travelled with them. Little boxes about 1.3 metres in length, about a metre wide, about a metre high, gilded with gold. And we first saw it pop up in the book of Exodus when God gave instructions on how to build it, how it was to be carried, how it was to be used in the temple. And it appeared again in Leviticus. I remember I brought a message on the Day of Atonement about when the high priest would go in on that day and, uh, and present himself before this little box. We saw it again at the Jordan River when the crossing and the priests led out, taking this little box with them. We saw it again at Jericho with the fall of the wall as they led out the priests with the ark. It was, that's the box itself. Of course, that ark which God gave, the Ark of the Covenant, was a sacred element to be used in the temple of worship. And in each of those situations, whether it was at the crossing of the Jordan or the Day of Atonement or the fall of Jericho, in each case, God gave very, very specific instructions about how it was to be used and the very thing that they were to do with this ark. And so this ark had enormous significance and, and it was a reminder to them again and again of how God had intervened in the history of Israel and how he had provided for them. And as I say, it was the most sacred of elements within the tabernacle because it was the very place where the presence of God dwelt. And so God took this very seriously. And when it came to issues of the ark, God gave them very specific instructions. And essentially, he told them, you must do this according to the book, according to the pattern which God had laid down. And what, as it was with the ark, they were to carry the thing on poles and there were rings inserted on it, in it. And in Exodus 25, we're told about that and that the, the Levites were the ones who were to carry the, um, the ark. They were the priests. Again, they were told to do it by the book, according to God's patterns. And even in Numbers 4, God lays out there, that he says that if anyone, if any human hand touches the ark, they would die. So it was really serious stuff. Now let's fast forward to the period we're at in right now, the life of David. This is week four of a series we've been working through. But just before we get to David, the first king of Israel, Saul, and just prior to Saul's coronation, we had the period of the judges. Now there was a time when the ark went, uh, sorry, the children of Israel went out to fight against their arch rivals, the Philistines. And in a certain battle, 4,000 Israelites were slaughtered. And, then, and, and so it was that in panic and in desperation, the Israelites regrouped. And it's here we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 3, these words. It says, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it might come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So these guys were licking their wounds and they were wondering, well, how is it that we lost 4,000? I mean, we're meant to be on the winning team, aren't we? You know, but the trouble is what they did. If you read again, that scripture says, let us take to ourselves... So let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that it, the Ark that is, might come among us and deliver us. See, they were looking to the Ark as if it was some form of good luck charm, like some sort of talisman that they would take out with them and actually uh, lead them out that it might deliver them. See, the Ark was nothing more than representative of the place where God dwelt. See, they were leaning on a method. They were going back to something of their own thinking. They weren't actually doing it according to what God had said. God had nowhere said to take the ark out of the tabernacle. That's where it was meant to be. Shiloh was the place at that time where the tent was pitched and that was the place where the most holy place was and that's where God had commanded the ark to remain. But instead they conjure up this idea. Maybe they were thinking back to Jericho when the ark went out before them and, and as a result or when they crossed the Jordan and where they, God brought them success and so they said, oh, let's just follow that pattern and see how that goes. But see, what they were doing here, they are using the ark not as, a, as a, um, something to be used in worship, but certainly as a weapon. But they were grasping, as I say, for this method, a formula. They were applying human reasoning. And it, this was not an act of faith. It was an act of presumption. And just because God did something back at Jericho or back at the Jordan, that was no guarantee that he was going to do the same thing again in the, in the future. And as it is with us, unless we actually seek God, in each and every situation, we will invariably fall into a pattern. We're going to fall into some sort of religious observance rather than flowing out of our relationship with God and seeking him about what his plan is in any given situation. So anyway, they take the ark and they head out into a battle. And this time, instead of 4,000 people being slain, 30,000 Israelites were slain by the Philistines. The plan massively backfired. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and this was a terrible day in the life of God's people. It was Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who had actually taken the Ark. It was, they'd conjured up this idea. And, and the, in that particular day, I mean, this was a dark day for Israel. And in that particular day, these two guys were killed and Phinehas's wife gave birth to a son and she named him Ichabod. Now, Ichabod means the glory has departed. This was a, a, a prophetic sign that was given. And this is how the Israelites saw the whole event. I mean, when the Ark of the Covenant went out of their midst, this was a really, really dark day. And in fact, after Phineas's wife had given birth to the child Ichabod, she died again, just adding weight to what was going on here. And as it is, the Ark is in Ashdod and they put it in the temple of Dagon and Dagon falls down a couple of times. I mean, this is quite a hilarious situation. And so that's not working and so they move it down to Gath and all these tumours and plagues break out and so they set it down to Ekron and more of the same. So that after seven months, they were, they're starting to figure to themselves, this isn't working. And so what the Philistines do is they want to get this thing out of their midst. I mean, it's classic Abrahamic covenant. You know, when God said, I'll curse those who curse you. I mean, these people, they'd taken upon themselves the very presence of God, uh, but not in the spirit in which God had intended. And so the, the curse had come upon them. So they, they, put this ark, they put the ark on an ox cart and they send it out of their midst up to a place called Kiriath-Jerim, 
which is actually back in the land of Israel. So it's back in the rightful country in which it was meant to be. And it comes to the home of a man called Abinadab. And there it stayed for 60 years. That's a long time. Yes, it was still back in the, in the land of Israel, but it was still not back in its rightful place. But by this time, Saul's now ascended to the throne and he gets on with the business of just going about and the, the religion, religious rituals continue, but the presence of God is not with them. It's just a dead ritual and nobody seems to care, least of all Saul. And so not only had the worship languished during Saul's reign, but Saul himself disobeyed the Lord's direction. And in his paranoia, uh, as Samuel rebukes him, he slaughters the priests and, uh, and, and he, he gets to the point where he's so diminished that he starts seeking through a spiritual medium, the witch of Endor, for guidance. And so it's a really, really dark time in Israel's history. And things are really out of order because because it was meant to centre around the tabernacle and, of course, at the centre of the tabernacle was, of course, meant to be the ark and it wasn't there. So there's a really important lesson, I think, for us just to pause and draw from that, which is, you know, we can be making the right noises. We can be going through all the ritual. We can have the form of godliness, as Paul says, but we can be denying his power. The glory, in fact, the Ichabod may have departed and we may not even notice I trust of one hope that's not the case because pursue God is one of the things that is most central of the three big planks that we build our church upon. You know, and so that means going back to Scripture and again and again. And it means uh, uh, nurturing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and of worship. Because if we don't, we'll drift, in, drift into apathy or complacency and neglect So what we do week in, week out as we come together around the word of God and to worship is to recalibrate, to come back and remember again, put God in his central place. So now we get to the pointy end of today's message where we're going to come now to the time of David. He's now ascended to be the king after Saul's checkered reign and he decides now it's about time that we brought the ark up to Jerusalem, not to Shiloh now. By this stage, Jerusalem is established as the, the, uh, the, the centre of religious and political activity. And, and so David, reigning in Jerusalem, decides he's going to bring the ark up there. And so he heads to Kiriath-Jerim, the place of Abinadab's house, where the ark had in fact been. And he goes up there and, he, he's, um, and we read this in First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 6. So David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ohio, these, these Uzzah and Ohio, two sons of Abinadab, they drove the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs, with lyres, with harps, tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. You know, this was a really big deal. The return of the presence of God in the form of the ark after around two generations of it being exiled, coming back to its rightful place into the central part of the worship of God's people. And can you imagine the scene? Here's the king in full voice celebrating before God and the worship bands fired up. And these guys have broken out the latest model of ox cart. In fact, it says, you know, it was a brand new one straight off the showroom floor. 
There's no second-rate treatment going on here. And here's Azza and Ahio, these two sons of Abinadab, driving it probably with a massive grin on their face as they roll on, the presence of God safely up back there. And they're setting out, testing out their new wheels. And uh, this is just a fantastic equation, uh, occasion. rather. But, you know, this then is where the fun ends. Remember what I said about God's plan. He would very specific about the pattern, which was poles were to be inserted in the rings and the ark was only to be carried by, um, by the priests, not by a couple of rednecks like Uzzah and Ohio. Yeah, but they thought their method for transporting the cart was better. They probably thought, hey, you know, listen, we've got technology. Why not use it? Uh, let's save our shoulders, you know. We've got a cart. Let's work smarter, not harder. In fact, you know, our cart's a fancy new one, so let's, let's go with it. But see, what the problem was, they were leaning on their logic rather than coming back and seeking the Lord and doing it according to the book that God had outlined for them. In fact, what they were doing, if you will, is following exactly the pattern of the Philistines that they had done. Remember, it was them who'd set the ark on an ox cart and sent it up to Kirith-Jerim. Reminds me of Romans chapter 12, if we cut to the New Testament. You know, when it says, you know, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. This is exactly what the Israelites are doing, following the pattern outlined by the Philistines. But Paul goes on in Romans to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not blindly following what others do outside the church, but actually having your mind transformed because he said in doing so, you will be able to test what is good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And in that passage, it's really important to note, Paul doesn't say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather follow the pattern that I give you in the Bible. Instead, he says, no, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And how do you do that? By the renewing of your mind. In other words, in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit who guides us. Yes, we have scripture, but in doing it by the book means surrendering, not to a pattern, but to a process, the process of transformation, the inward change, the renewing of our mind, because then we can test and approve God's good and pleasing and perfect will and our obedience will follow. So let's go back to our passage. Let's see what happens next in First Corinthians, sorry, First Chronicles, rather, 13 and chapter, uh, verse 9. It says, When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly overturned it. But the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him because he had put out his hand toward the ark and he died before God. Then David became angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah and he called that place Perez Uzzah, which means outburst against Uzzah, which as it is to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The happy times that they were having there soon turned sour and a celebration gave way to a funeral service, which of course was not the original plan. And from this, I mean, God has a way of upsetting our ox carts, the things we build according to our plans, our paltry little schemes. You know, in Uzzah's case, he could have said, well, you know, I know you've got good intentions, uh, uh, you know, so I'll just forget the fact that you reached out your hand and touched the ark. You know, God had told them specifically how it was to be done. 
And he's all, according to his word, and he always backs up his word. So Isaac cups it in the neck and David cracks the sads. He gets angry. And so it is, we so often get upset when our ox carts that we built get upset. And we soon find out that it's God who's the one who's actually upsetting our ox cart. And like David, David first became angry, but then, as we know, he's a man with a soft heart, a man after God's own heart. And very quickly, his anger turns to repentance. And so it is that he soon realises it's not God's fault that Uzzah copped it, but it's his fault because he was doing things outside the will of God. And so he repents and a holy fear takes over him and becomes afraid and he realises this assignment's actually too big for him, at least in the way he was going about it the first time there. And so he parks the ark in the house of Obed-Edom somewhere between Kiriath-Jerim and Jerusalem, which is about 12 kilometres, and it sits there for about three months. And God pours out blessing on Obed-Edom's house and he, 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 he brings blessing on his home. And he will bring blessing on our home if we do things the way God intends us. So it is. David goes back to Jerusalem to rethink his strategy. We read two chapters on this. Now in First, First Chronicles chapter 15. After David's rethought his strategy. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one. And I mean, he means no one is to carry the ark of God, but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. Good move. See, David had his light bulb moment. This time he's getting the right people together. Aaron and the Levites, the priests, not oxen. And the next few verses go on to describe these various clans. It talks about Kohath, Merari, Hebron, Aziel. These were heads of clans of the Levitical uh, order. These are the right crew for the task. Let's jump down to verse 12. David said to them, You are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. In other words, we didn't do it by the book. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord, doing it by the book. So this time David had sought the Lord. He acknowledges the first time when he says, you know, we do not seek him according, according to the ordinance. And so he'd learned a crucial lesson. His motivation may have been right the first time, but his methods were completely wrong. You know, and so it is for us. We must first seek God. We must not just slavishly follow some pattern. We come back to the place of prayer as the starting point for everything we do in the name of the Lord. It, see, it's just so easy to lean on a method, right? Because seeking God's an inexact science. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes discipline. It takes study. It takes prayer. It takes worship to attune our 
inner life to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But that's going to be so, so crucial in this next season. As we come back to church together, you know, this is going to be a time when we just don't want to go through ritual for the sake of it. Hey, this is going to be an exciting time. It's a time when I really believe we need to actually seek God together. Because if we don't, we'll just end up like the first attempt to bring up the ark. You know, we'll get ourselves an ox cart and away we go. Only to crack the sads when a shiny new cart hits a few bumps and the presence of God starts to fall off and then we might actually, like David, come back to that place of repentance and seek him again. Or we might go back to that old chestnut of, hey, this is the way we've always done it. And so we'll go back into relying on a method again. Our motivations might be right again, but if we don't seek God in his word, it'd be like Abraham. You might remember the story where Abraham, when God had promised a son to him, and Sarah, his wife, decides that she's going to contrive a particular plan on how this is all going to be happening. And she, say, she says to Abraham, take Hagar, his mate, her maidservant. She says, perhaps I can build a family through her. And we know the result of that. Ishmael is born, not the son of the promise, a son for sure. And God blesses him. But, uh, but he's still, Ishmael became a thorn in the flesh to the Israelites for millennia. So, and, and Abraham said, let Ishmael live before you. In other words, bless Ishmael. And of course, God says, yeah, I'll, I'll bless him, sure. But I want you to understand one thing. I do not bless and work on the, the, um, the workings of your own hand those things which you contrive of your own flesh. Well, let's get back to David because now he's cracked onto God's method and he goes through the act of consecrating the priests and every significant move of God, whether it's the dedication of the temple or, or entering into the promised land, God goes through the act of consecration, of setting aside people to be holy, understanding that God in the ark is the presence of God and he's to be revered and he's to be worshipped. And so David, just as he had worshipped the first time, now as he's bringing up the ark, is worshipping God with fervour. And, and this time, not be, with an ark, the ark sitting on a cart, this is a much greater celebration as he brings it up by the priests on the poles, doing it the right way. And so let's cut to verse 16. It says, Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music and harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. And then we get into a whole bunch of hard-to-read names in the next few verses. These are the guys that got the gig to, to play. And let's jump down to verse 25 and says, So it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went up to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And now David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the singing with the singers. And David also wore an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. Here's David stripped of all his royal robes, wearing the linen ephod, basically the priestly garment, just blending in with the crowd. And he was, he, he'd laid aside he was, his, his royalty. He was humbled before the greatness of God, the great king. And so it is in his humility, he surrenders his personal privileges, his position to actually just humbly lay himself in honour before the Lord and his people. 
And the whole worship band's there in on the act and Asaph's appointed as the worship director and Chenaniah's like the lead worship singer. And so they all come and, and David's holding nothing back from God. In fact, if we go to 2 Samuel 6, which is an, account of, uh, a, a, an alternate account of the same story, we read this in 2 Samuel 6.13. Said when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. Can you imagine that? Every six steps, if it was, as I said, from Kirith Jerem to Jerusalem, perhaps around 10 kilometers, every six steps, they're sacrificing um, seven, uh, seven calves and, uh, sorry, a bull and a fattened calf each six steps. I figure that's somewhere around 4,000 head of cattle being sacrificed on the way up to Jerusalem. That's, I mean, a, a great price to pay, which really speaks to the significance of this moment. And in David's excitement about the return of the ark, he dances before God with all his might. And it's anything but some sort of formal exercise. David's worshipping God with everything fully engaged, his arms, his legs, his feet. He didn't care that he looked undignified. And his wife, Michal, she despised him in her heart and she gets stuck into him about his behaviour, being below the dignity of a king. And this is how he responds to her in 1 Samuel 6.22. He says, I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. See, he didn't care. David was dancing before an audience of one. David only had eyes for the glory of God. And that's all that mattered to him is what God thought. And such was the significance. In the next chapter, David writes a, 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 um, a psalm. In fact, it's a compilation of three psalms, Psalm 105, Psalm 106 and Psalm 96, all put together. And what David's doing is he's resetting the agenda for the nation of Israel putting the priorities around the worship of God. And that brings me to where we are as a church as One Hope, as we come to that place now where we're going to gather together. You know, as I said at the outset and as John O reiterated, we are so grateful for the way in which our worship band has led us and our crew has served us in the production team and the faithfulness of people in serving. But as we come together, I know the worship band's going to be so excited to be able to uh, minister before a live group of people and we're going to rejoice when we come together we're going to be like David I trust we are I hope we come to that place where it's like the ark of God coming up the ark of God returning the people of God returning the presence of God in our midst I hope that's our experience as we come together as a gathered church in saying that I am mindful still of some who are unable to gather in big numbers. Unfortunately, that's the, the hand we've been dealt and we're seeking to be honour uh, our government and the way that we deal with that. And we just want to be mindful of that and be sensitive, of course, and be gracious. And, uh, and you know, so while we'll be, but then we don't want to let that dampen our enthusiasm either when we come together to celebrate. So let's try and strike that right balance, of course. So let's get down to where this is uh, for us today. What are we to make of this really significant moment in the history of Israel? I think there are two lessons that we can take out of this. And I think they come out of the two separate attempts to bring the ark up. The first is what, what, uh, when we don't do it by the book, when we don't do it according to the pattern. And if I go back to that point earlier about obedience and maybe having the right motivations but the wrong methods, that's the key takeaway for me. You know, we need to come back to the revealed will of God, the Bible, 
Because how God's acted in the past is always a great indicator of how he's likely to act in the future. And God doesn't change his ways just to accommodate our preferences or the way we think it should be done. You know, that's just going to, that's just us building our own ox carts and God's sure to upset those if they're of our own making. The second point comes from the second attempt to bring the ark up and that's when we do do it by the book. That's when we seek God. That's when the joy and the blessing flows to us. And David, who, like the second time, had prepared a tent for the ark and then he consecrates the priesthood. He's got the right order. He's got the right people. He's doing it the right way. And the presence and the power and the provision of God are all there for him and for the, his people. And so as worshippers of Jesus, of course, we know that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is gone. That's no longer here. That's fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And again, go back to Romans 12. We're not going to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but let us be transformed. Let us not follow the pattern, but let us submit ourselves to the process, the process of the Holy Spirit working in us, that we might do it by the book. Not following, just following the principles of worship and of prayer and of Bible reading and of submitting ourselves to one another out of love and out of reverence for Christ, as it says. So can I encourage you, keep pressing into God in the season that lies ahead. Seek Him in His Word. Be firm in the spiritual disciplines. Live in a way that pleases Him because that's going to bring great blessing. I'm really excited as we come to that place where we can gather together. So let's look forward to that and hey, let's be praying into that as well that we might be obedient to the Holy Spirit in the season that lies ahead. So let's pray. Loving Father, thank you that we can uh, come to a place of gathering once more. And in all of that, Father, we seek your presence. We seek the presence of the Holy Spirit. We seek your face. Father God, we don't want to slavishly be bound by some pattern, but we want to be submitted under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit, that the name of Jesus might be glorified, that Father, in this season ahead, we might look to you and at your spirit your spirit would dwell amongst us, the presence of God, the very presence of God be with us as we gather together. Lord, bless all those this week in the hearing of this word today and use your word, breathe upon it, Father God, and bring encouragement to all of us, Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Bless you. See you soon.